Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me today Dr. Barbara Schuholm to tell us all about her very recently published book from the University of Minnesota, From Lapland to Sampmi. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that fully correctly, but we have Barbara here, who is the expert, um, to tell us all about material objects from this Northern European, this Nordic um, culture, that tell us a whole lot about a people, about multiple places, uh, both now and over the last few hundred years. Um, Barbara, thank you so much for being here to share your expertise with us. Oh, thanks, Miranda. I'm glad to be here. This book, I think is very cool in a lot of senses. It does a ton of different things. It looks at um, ethnography, it looks at museum studies, it looks at sort of political history. um, And it does it not just in areas uh, where the Sampi people are from, um, but also kind of how these conceptions of them, these imaginaries of them have been thought about um, more broadly. So there's a lot to get into with the book. But before we dive into many of its facets, could you maybe introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Oh, sure. Well, my name is Barbara Schuholm. I'm a writer, independent scholar, and translator of Norwegian and Danish. And this book, From Lapland to Sopmi, has its origins, I think, in my long-term interest in a Danish artist and ethnographer, Amelia de Montat, who lived among the indigenous Sami in the early 20th century. And just to say a little bit more about the Sami, um, their ancestors, called Laps or Laplanders in earlier times, have been on the Fenno-Scandinavian Peninsula since the end of the Ice Age. They lived by fishing, trapping, hunting wild reindeer, and later they began to follow the migrating reindeer throughout the seasons and to herd them. And their languages are akin to Finnish, Finno-Ugric languages. Um, In older times, they had an oral culture and practiced a form of religion based on nature. The area that they lived in, Sopmi, was the whole upper part of what's now Norway, Finland, Sweden, and the Kola Peninsula of Russia. And up until the Reformation, they lived on more or less equal terms with others in the area. But in the 1600s, they began to face colonization through the Lutheran Church and the combined states of Denmark, Norway, and Finland, Sweden, who were competing over the fluctuating borders of the north. So I translated an ethnographic travelogue by Amelia de Monthat, as well as a collection of Sami folktales. And I wrote a biography of her, Black Fox. And during that time, of course, I visited many museums in Scandinavia, and I amassed a lot of material on Sami ethnography because that was her subject. I found that there's quite a lot written about Sami objects and museum collections and exhibits in Scandinavia, but much of that research is not very well known outside the North. In fact, many people aren't completely unaware that uh, Scandinavia has indigenous people living there. And a lot of it, of course, was in one of the Scandinavian languages, which many people don't read. So I wanted to use my skills as a translator and a writer to make more of this research available. And my focus gradually turned to telling the cultural history of Sopmi over the past several centuries through objects and collections. I also wanted to carry the story of the Sami into the present Uh, and discuss Sami artisans, curators, activists, and also issues around repatriation and the Sami museums. 
Thank you for explaining um, those pieces. I always find it really interesting to kind of see what brings people um, to writing a book, any book really, and especially when a book is sort of structured in an interesting way. Because obviously, I imagine there were a lot of decisions that went into kind of what do you include with this big a topic? Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us about this. How, how did you structure the book and how did you decide what objects and stories to include? Well, the book is divided into three parts, and you're right, it was not very easy to decide out of this huge wealth of material what to include. And my aim was not really to offer a comprehensive historical overview of Sahmi, because that would be a thousand pages. Um, but the book does proceed rather chronologically from around 1670, I think, to the present in what was then the two states of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, Finland. And that was a time of big border conflict conflict in the north and efforts to missionize among the Sami and bring them under control, as well as to study them and describe them in different texts. And each chapter in parts one and two takes on a time period and a series of events and personalities to create a narrative around one or more collections. And I think that way of writing a narrative is, is fairly natural to me, and it was a good way for me to organize um, these ideas of collections. Um, religious objects, ethnographic artifacts, art, music, craft. Um, one such collection was made of a hundred sacred drums taken mostly by force and persuasion by the missionary Thomas von Vesten, who was born in uh, Norway, but was educated as were most Norwegians in Copenhagen. And he took them around 1722, uh, 1723 from the area around Trondheim in Norway. Uh, most of them burned a few years later in the, in the uh, 1728 fire that partially destroyed Copenhagen. So he had sent those hundred drums there um, for study. I also write about Carl Linnaeus, who everyone knows, um, and his travels in Lapland, which are less known, how he went around dressed as a Sami and had a drum of his own and used to perform for people in England and in Holland and Germany. I wrote about small objects, large objects, and about museum formation in Norway and Sweden and how the Sami were classified and their objects were exhibited. And then midway through part two, there's a shift and the stories from the early and mid 20th centuries start moving into the present to discuss changing attitudes towards the Sami and the increasing agency of the Sami themselves as they explore their past and develop aspects of their traditional culture. And by part three, the focus is largely on the cultural currents of the last 50 years with the Sami as the main actors. There's been a real renaissance, uh, particularly in the last 30 years, of Sami art, craft, music, um, and all forms of culture. So um, some of the objects I write about are well-known, such as particular drums with long histories of being sold to aristocrats for their curiosity cabinets in Europe. But I also write about human remains, uh, crania collecting. Uh, I write about miniature objects. I write about wax cylinders used for recording music. Um, I write about sacred objects and ordinary domestic objects, about souvenirs sold to tourists, and the revival of craft objects like root baskets and wooden milking bowls that became coveted works of artistry and are sold for thousands of pounds um, in, um, in, at auction. 
I wasn't just interested in the object, though, but in the story behind the object, who made it, why, who collected it, why, where it ended up. And I look for unusual relationships of appropriation and sometimes collaboration and link the object to the historical time. Thank you for taking us through that. I think that highlights a bunch of things that I'm now going to ask you about in more detail um, to get into some of those stories. So starting, I guess, I suppose we'll move somewhat chronologically through this. Um, Thinking about the earlier chronologies in the book, uh, we talk about the collection of Sami objects. Who who was collecting them? What, What were they collecting them for? (laughs) Well, the first uh, collectors were usually collecting for their private museums. And one of the first, in fact, I think the first private museum in Sweden was in Uppsala. Uh, Johanna Schefferus, who was uh, hired by Queen Christina to come from Germany and sort of teach and and, uh, uh, teach her, but also teach at the university. Um, He asked clergymen and Sami students, and there were Sami students then at the university, believe it or not, um, to donate or sell him objects to display in his personal museum for educational purposes. And he wrote one of the very first books about the Sami. It was published in 1673. Uh, in Latin. And then the following year, it came out in England, and it was very, very popular in England. He described the objects, and he had them illustrated. It's actually a very beautiful book, and it's still considered um, quite good in terms of the ethnography. The kings and queens in Scandinavia and Europe, um, they also wanted examples of so-called lapish wizardry and witchcraft that included the drums and the so-called idols of stone or wood. And again, England was a prime place where where people were collecting some of the stuff. I think Charles I had a a, a Sami drum in his collection at one time. Um, By the 1800s, the desire to collect was, was largely ethnographic by that time. And the Sami were considered a lesser and primitive people on a lower rung of civilization. And it was assumed they would be assimilated or that they would simply die out in the face of settlement and development in Scandinavia. So there was a a competition to study them and to collect as much of their material cultural as possible. And this was taking place at the same time, new ethnographic and national museums were taking shape in the Nordic countries. So in Sweden, for instance, there was not only a historical museum in Stockholm, which had a collection of, say, 48 drums, I think, but there were ethnographic museums in uh, Gothenburg, Göteborg, and Stockholm. And there were regional museums, there were folk museums around the country. Uh, in Stockholm, a man named Artur Hazelius was responsible for what became the Nordiska, the Nordic Museum, which cares for the largest collection of Sami objects in the world, about 6,500, I think. The Nordiska at one time had a whole department, in fact, devoted to the Sami. The question that the Nordic museums had to answer was whether the Sami objects belonged with a national collection. For instance, were the Sami actually, were they Swedish or were they Norwegian? Um, Or whether the Sami objects were exotic and belonged with other ethnographic collections from around the world, especially Arctic territories like Greenland and Siberia. So that played a huge role in, in terms of where the who collected these 
um, these these early works and where they put them. And sometimes they move them from museum to museum. And it was different in different countries. For instance, in Sweden, the Sami were considered to be Swedish, but in Norway, they were considered to be other. And they were put into the folk museum uh, only in the 1950s with the rest of Norwegian culture. Before that, they'd all been in, all the objects had been in the ethnographic museum along with um, tribal uh, objects from Borneo and Africa and uh, Asia. So lots of diversity there. Yes, very much quite a lot of diversity there. Um, and some interesting things about kind of England being such a site of interest in um, these objects and also the kind of idea of, wait, where do national boundaries that came up later um, fit in with this culture, both of which I think are threads that progress um, throughout the book. But kind of before we get into that, I want to ask a little bit more detail. Um, you mentioned the drums. Uh, the drums seem like quite a big deal. So why were they so significant as objects in their own right, in Sami culture by themselves, and then as well, and in some ways it seems separately, to outside collectors and outside political actors? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, because they were um, very much sought after for lots of different reasons. And they do kind of symbolize Sami culture and did for a lot of people. That's what they knew, these people who beat on the drums. Um, at one time, there were probably uh, at least several thousand drums in Sápmi. I don't know, maybe there were more. Um, and they had a really central place in daily life and religion. They were usually oval-shaped. Some were quite large. Uh, they were either a bowl drum that had been hollowed out from a large tree burl with a reindeer hide drum head strapped over it, or there was a frame drum made of a ring of bent wood with a hide stretched and secured in the frame. And the drums were... Um, illustrated with pictograms. They were usually painted on the tanned leather with alder bark ink. Um, and they were of animals, people, gods and goddesses and other symbols. Um, and sometimes they mix Christian symbols like a church or a cross with, um, you know, an illustration of the thunder god, for instance. And these drums were used for both healing and divination. Many families, most families probably had a household drum that they used to predict the weather the movements of the reindeer or events in the future. And when they used it, the drum was held parallel to the ground and the user beat it lightly with a hammer made of wood or bone in the shape of a Y, a pointer made of horn or brass would then bounce around on the membrane until it stopped. And the symbol where it stopped would then be interpreted sort of like a Ouija board. Um, the community spiritual representatives, the Nawaides, who are sometimes called shamans, uh, would also use the drum in this way with a pointer. But sometimes the drum was held in one hand and it beaten rhythmically with the hand or a hammer until the Nawaides went into a trance. At this point, his or her spirit would travel into another world or the Nwaiti would be transported to another place in this world. And the Nwaiti might see visions or encounter animals and the dead. They might be able to recover the soul of someone who was ill or on the verge of death. 
And uh, in the minds of religious authorities, the drum was a very sinister instrument allied with the conceptions of the Sami as wizards and devil worshippers. So one of the reasons people were interested in the drum is because they were interested in witchcraft. And so this was sort of a fetish object to be collected. Um, The persecution of the Sami and the destruction of their drums had become quite prevalent at the end of the 17th century in Sápmi, and Sámi men and women were burned. They were hanged as witches in northern Norway, while in Sweden the Sámi were forced, usually on pain of death, to give up their drums in church-sponsored assemblies or trials. Some of the drums were destroyed right there on the spot. They were thrown into the burning fire, while others were kept by the pastors uh, to be sold or given to collectors in Scandinavia or abroad. And the theft of the and the destruction of the drums really reached its peak, I think, in the first decades of the 18th century, though some Sami continued to make drums and to hide them. Drums and drum fragments were hidden in rock clefts, in the mountains, in caves, or even in trees. And they're still being found in Sápmi today. Um, one drum, the Bindal drum, was sold by a Sami man to the Norwegian Folk Museum in 19. 19- 25, after having spent um, many decades, maybe a century, hidden in a cave, and it's now been returned to a Sami museum. But for the most part, uh, intact drums out of the several thousand were now found only in museums. There are probably only about 80 known intact drums. The majority are in Sweden. Norway and Finland have just a few, and several dozen are still in Europe, mostly in Germany. There are two in the British Museum and one in Cambridge at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, both dating from the 17th century. And they most most of the drums came over in the 17th century. The one in Cambridge is, was probably given by Daniel Solander, who traveled with um, Joseph Banks to the South Seas. But his father was a pastor in uh, Sweden, so that's how he got his drum. Thank you for explaining kind of the many uh, facets of that, um, because clearly there was a lot going on um, with the drums, especially, as you said, in the sort of 17th, um, 18th centuries, when the fascination from outsiders really seemed to extend as well uh, beyond just the drums. So they were often, as you talk about in the book, kind of the center um, focus. there were all sorts of things going on exhibiting uh, Sami culture abroad, uh, especially in England, and like full-on exhibitions. I was stunned to kind of realize in some senses how detailed these museum exhibits, these presentations were about the culture with different clothes and even uh, in some of the later ones, kind of Sami people being brought over as like living exhibits. Um but also in some ways they were really not detailed. There were like entire pieces of information that were just <laughs> completely missed out, um, which was a really interesting combination of sort of obsessive attention to detail, but only in some senses. Um, and I am going to kind of cherry pick through the many examples you discuss in the book and just ask you about the exhibition of Laplanders. What was so significant about this one in particular? Well, it's significant because it it was one of the first. Um, It was the first in England, and it was probably one of the first in Europe. And this was uh, Mr. Bullock, um, and it was... uh, he was a collector. Uh, I think he was from Sheffield originally, and uh, he um, 
had uh, the Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly where he exhibited um, all kinds of curios. And he got it into his head to exhibit um, uh, Laplanders. Um, First, the original idea was to bring reindeer over and to have some kind of theatrical exhibit. But then he decided he would not only bring reindeer, but he would bring people. Um, and he would bring a selection of their sleds and um, and their clothing and, and put those on the wall. And there was also a panorama of the so-called North Cape, um, even though the Sami that he was exhibiting did not actually come from there. They came from the area of Röros in um, Norway, which is much farther south. It was a three-month-long exhibit. It took place in early 1822 in central London. And he brought this family of three, uh, mother, father, and their son from Norway to London, together with the reindeer. And he displayed them uh, against these painted mountains. And this was in the Regency. And there are some really wonderful illustrations of this. Um, 58,000 visitors came to see the reindeer and the Sami in their furs. And it took place at a time when Britain's empire was expanding and ordinary people took a great interest in curios and foreign places. And I went down a real rabbit hole with this because I was so fascinated by reading about the curiosity uh, museums and the barbershops um, and the beginning of the British Museum. All that was really fascinating, even though not too much of it had to do with the Sami. But I, I was curious after, you know, what happened to all this material after the um, the exhibition was over, and that's always a question that came up. I don't know. Um, did it uh, go into the trash? Did it go back to Norway? Did it sort of filter into some museums? Um, we, we just don't know that. But meanwhile, um, later in the 19th century, there was another impresario, Carl uh, Hagenbeck, and he really went beyond what William Bullock had done big time. He had a zoo in Hamburg, and he took to arranging so-called living exhibitions of Native people, whether from the Congo or Lapland. In 1875, he brought six Sami people to Hamburg to reenact Sami daily life, um, and this became a regular feature. They would pretend to be on migration, and they would lasso the reindeer, or they would pretend to have a wedding procession, sort of day after day, the same people would be getting married. Um, For many years, a number of Sami people from the north of Norway and Sweden participated in these exhibitions in Hamburg and elsewhere in Europe. So you see posters from exhibitions in Paris and in Copenhagen and um, many other towns in um, Austria and and Germany. and although they were exploited as examples of primitive people, it's interesting that several recent studies have pointed out just how many Sami families took on this work willingly to share their culture, to make money, and to travel to European cities. There's a woman in Norway, Katrina Baglo, who's done a whole book on these exhibitions, going back to the original sources and and what the families wrote home to their um, what uh, to their people, and uh, sort of. They, when they came home, they were known as English Nils or Parisian Yeni. Um, so it's it's a little bit mixed. Um, there was some voluntary joining up with these primitive ex- exhibitions as well. Thank you for adding um, kind of that last piece about the agency and the exploitation part, because I think that's 
it, it's kind of easy to think of these exhibitions in a particular way. And I really appreciated how with this exhibition and some of the others you discuss in the book, you make sure to give us that nuance um, and complication and kind of think through all these different entanglements mm-hmm. in a lot of ways um, that these exhibitions provide for us. And I think that was also true um, in the parts of the book where you talk about uh, the kind of collections, the departments, the studying of uh, the Sami people and culture. And I was really interested by kind of how much that effort, that sort of like, let's figure out who the Sami are and what they do, how much those efforts were so clearly focused around like quite a small number of people. There's some, you know, I'm not usually a proponent of kind of the great man theory of history where it's all about this one guy, (laughs) but it's very clear that kind of without the efforts of a surprisingly small number of people, um, this whole collection effort, this whole ethnographic effort would have looked quite different over a sustained period of time. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about a few of those key figures and explain how they influenced how Sami culture was seen and understood and interpreted um, by outsiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it is true. There were just a few of them. And um, I didn't go into the Finnish side of things very much. Um, there were also some great men or folklorists there who collected. I kind of focused more on Norway and Sweden. Um, and I think in Norway, you could definitely say that a man named Jens Andreas Fries was um, a very key figure, even though he wasn't a great collector. He, he did collect, and his cousin, um, Ludwig Da, was uh, head of the Ethnographic Museum. So, you know, there's a, there's a strong connection there. But he was the first, um, and for a long time, the only professor of Finnish and Sami languages at the University of Oslo in the mid to late 19th century. And And in addition to teaching, he did a lot of significant work in linguistics and grammar, and he published a huge North Sami and Norwegian dictionary. He also played a role in collecting objects, um, and he published books in uh, Lapish mythology and folklore. And in addition to that, uh, in addition to all this academic work, He wrote several popular works, travel logs and fiction, which did more to introduce the Sami to the Norwegian public than anything that had been published before and contributed to exoticizing them. He wrote a novel called Laila that was published in 1881. It was a huge success. And in the 20th century, it was made into a film. Everyone knows about it. It told the story of a Norwegian girl who was orphaned and adopted by a rich Sami family and raised as a Sami girl. Only late in life did she find out she was Norwegian. It was a love story set against an exotic background of wolves, northern lights, and reindeer herding. So he was one of the first of the lapologists, but there were others. In Sweden, there was a husband and wife. The wife, Lotta von Duben, was a photographer, and she was one of the first to do landscape photography in Sweden. But in the 1860s, when they were traveling to Sami communities, um, she also took a number of pictures of, of Sami people from different sidas or communities. Um, and her husband, Gustav, was a professor, 
and uh, he was also a baron, and they had plenty of money. So they would set off on these tours to Lapland, and he collected all kinds of things um, and ended up writing a huge book, about 600 pages, full of a lot of misinformation, really, about the Sami. So he was another very prominent Lapologist. And in the 19th century, they were very concerned with the idea of the Sami as, as, as primitive um, and um, they, you know, they wanted to make sure that people knew that there, there were the Sami and they were interesting, but they were also very, very exotic. Um, by the 20th century, that had started to change quite a bit. And so even though the Sami were still exoticized and um, often spoken about as reindeer herders, even though many actually no longer owned reindeer and lived in cities and worked um, as teachers, say, or um, bus drivers, um, there was still the sense that they, they needed to be studied. And so in Sweden, in the 1930s, a young ethnographer named Ernst Manker, who's one of my favorite characters who appears in several chapters, he decided to make Sami culture his life's work. And one of the first things he did was take on the enormous task of traveling around Scandinavia and Europe to locate, photograph, and describe all the remaining drums in museums and to publish a huge two-volume work on the subject in German, which was sort of the academic language of the time. Um, He then managed to create a museum inside the museum at the Nordiska in Stockholm. This was called the Lapish Department, and it consisted not only of a permanent exhibit, but an archive of important books and texts, photographs and artworks. He published many, many articles and books on the Sami from the 1930s to the early 1970s, both academic work and popular illustrated volumes filled with his own beautiful photographs. For the Swedes and for others, because a lot of these books were translated into English and German, Monker's exhibits and writing were sort of a gateway to the life of the reindeer herding Sami, and he tended to write about them in the ethnographic present as living a timeless life. As I said, um, in reality, the reindeer herders at this point made up only about 10% of all Sami, and many of them had been forced from their traditional territories by Uh, resource extraction by mining, logging, and the building of dams that flooded their villages. And uh, Munker really didn't talk much about that. Many of them now lived in the towns and cities. And he also didn't talk about sort of urban Sami. He also didn't talk about the boarding schools and the loss of language, about the discrimination that the Sami faced, and about their place in Swedish society. There were, you know, all of these guys were sympathetic to the Sami, and they had Sami friends. Um, they, uh, they would have considered themselves supporters of the Sami, but they were willfully blind to what the Sami themselves were saying and what they were what they were actually going through um, as their territory was gradually stripped away from them. This is something um, I'd like to get into kind of as we move uh, more towards the present. And I wasn't necessarily expecting kind of those experiences, what the Sami were actually going through as the territory changed, as the economic activity changed. I wasn't maybe naively thinking that this would come up so much when it comes to the idea of Sami handicrafts, Um, but it's very clear kind of how core that was um, to the experience and to this kind of particular moment of 
change or transition period. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit in more detail about kind of how ethnography sort of dealt with that? Or how did within Sami um, debates themselves, how was that discussed? Kind of what's the role of Sami handicrafts in this kind of moment of the 20th century and the perception that it's still all about reindeer when actually not so much? Right. Yes. No, you're right. Um, Well, from the point of view of the Scandinavian ethnographers, the material culture of the Sami was part of the view of them as having a timeless culture, which was disappearing and needed to be rescued. So a huge amount of the collecting that went on in the late 19th and early 20th century was salvage ethnography, the same kind of collecting that was going on in other countries with indigenous populations, such as Canada, U.S., South and Central America. Um, The Sami themselves didn't see things that way um, because many continued to practice traditional craft making, which is called Dwoji in the North Sami language. So they were still making clothing of cloth and fur. Uh, They were making silver jewelry. They were weaving. um, They were boat building. They were making sleds. They were knife crafting um, because they were still using a lot of this material. Um, and uh, they did not think of themselves as dying out. Uh, So that's sort of the key point, whereas the ethnographers sort of thought, these people are dying out, these things are going to be lost, you know, some of them are made of wood and fur, and they'll disintegrate, we need to save them, we need to bring them to the museums in the south of Sweden and, and Norway and Finland. Um, But the Sami were still using these things as trade, and there were a lot of tourists up in the north. Um, There were a huge number of salmon fishers from England, for instance, who were willing to pay very well for knives, boots, and other objects. And this led to almost a comical competition between the ethnographers who were running around buying up uh, you know, lasso uh, holders or lasso rings or carved spoons or knives um, for the museums and finding out that the, the, the wealthy salmon fishers from England were outspending them and uh, just buying them as souvenirs. Um, so the other thing that's kind of interesting about the, the early 20th century is the arts and crafts movement in Sweden and Norway in particular, and it had a strong preference for the traditional and handmade. And it was a time when people were really rediscovering all of those beautiful, um, you know, carvings and um, and clothing and shoes and hats of, of the villages of Norway and Sweden and trying to save those as well um, because they felt like the peasants were all going to America or they were moving to work in factories in the cities and that whole uh, farmer culture, bonde culture, was sort of dying out. Um, and this kind of blended um, with... Sami handicraft as well, the desire to save both sort of traditional Norwegian Swedish handicraft and Sami handicraft. So there were lots of books, there were lots of um, how to's, there were classes, um, there were um, uh, teachers who were working on these things. And in the 1920s, private individuals from Scandinavia began to collect 
handicrafts from soft meat to display and uh, to sell. They started seeing the artistic value of it, while the Sami themselves started to look upon Dwaji as a means of creating and holding on to their identity in this time of unprecedented change. And influence, influential Sami craftspeople began to teach course, courses in Dwaji, and this resulted in new markets and schools where Dwaji was taught. So it's it's sort of right after the Second World War that this gets going in a big way. And um, there begin to be uh, folk high schools that are specializing in the Sami language um, and in um, in crafts. And a lot of well-known um, uh, Duajars, Sami handicrafters, kind of got their start in, in the school, say, in, uh, in Jokmok, um, in Sweden, which was one of the centers of, of Duoji. And I, I write about that quite a bit in the book, because I think that's an interesting whole period, the sort of mid-century um, resurgence of the Sami. It's not written about quite as much. Um, often people write about the political activists at the er, in the early 20th century, and then they write about the, the political activism of the 70s, um, you know, sort of the generation of 68 around the world came to Sopmi as well. But there were people um, really trying to carve out an identity for the Sami in the mid uh, mid 20th century. And one of the big ways was through maintaining uh, traditional handicraft. So that's actually a perfect kind of way to ask you about um, the 70s, because I, I found from reading the book that um, the 70s and 80s sort of made a lot more sense with that mid-century context. Um, it wasn't sort of coming from nothing, coming out of nowhere. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe kind of build on, we, we've got this revival in the mid-century, we've got the schools, we've got um, handicrafts, and quite obviously, at least to me, given uh, how important Sami objects had been in museums and exhibitions. If you're going to have a revival movement that focuses a lot on material culture, it would make sense that thinking about how those things might be displayed and talked about in museums becomes something of interest, um, something important to a group wanting to revive those traditions or keep them alive, I suppose. So I was wondering if you could tell us about kind of what happened when the Sami activists in the 70s and 80s um, began to sort of have more of a voice in what was happening with their objects in museums and in sort of the history that they had not been allowed to write? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, there had been Sami activists throughout the 20th century working to preserve their culture and to contest uh, stereotyped representations of themselves as primitive and ignorant. Um, as far back as the 1930s, Sami writers and teachers had been discussing the idea of a central Lapish museum in the pages of the Sami newspaper, Sami Folket, uh, Sami people in Sweden, for instance, uh, the Swedish Sami teacher, Karin Steinberg, who was a real firebrand, uh, was a collector herself of Sami Dwaji, and other people were collecting as well. Um, and it wasn't salvage ethnography particularly, it was just a sense that we need to keep these objects safe. We don't have a museum yet, but we will uh, keep them in our homes and we will pass them on and we will, we will preserve the meaning of them as well as information about who made them. Um, so... Um, the first museum, really, um, 
started before the Second World War in Karasjok, Norway, up on the Finnmark Plateau. And a number of Sami objects were collected for a small wooden museum. It was just um, kind of a handmade little house. But like many structures, this museum was burned when the Germans retreated through Finnmark and kind of scorched earth, and they destroyed everything um, in their path. And uh, so this museum and all its objects were wiped out. Um, and then collecting resumed after the war. And then by 1979, the first real Sami museum, which is still there, opened its doors in Karashok. And this was really a beautiful building with lots of Sami touches, uh, uh, beautiful doors um, with handles that were designed by the artist Ibar Yoks. Um, and kind of old-fashioned displays, you know, dioramas of uh, people in sled caravans and stuffed reindeer and so on. But this became a real center for collecting, and they now have actually a very, very substantial collection, not only of um, objects, but of uh, art. I think they have 4,000 works of art as well. Um, There had been a meeting already in 1976 of Sami uh, artists and curators, and it called for each Nordic country to create its own Sami museum. So the one in Karashak uh, was was the first, but eventually Aitya Museum was built in Yokmok, still there. Um, It's grown and it also has a concert area it has a library um, it's sort of the center if you anyone has ever heard of the Yokmok winter market when thousands of people converge on this little town for a week of um, exhibits talks um, concerts and dancing um, and the same thing happened in uh, Inari Finland up far in the north with the Sida Museum which is quite big and has been expanded more recently. So meanwhile, in Sweden, the Sami museum workers were trying to establish for the first time an inventory of where Sami objects were held in the country. And there were thousands of them, um, but there was no sort of real inventory. So this was kind of a political act as well. They traveled all around to museums in Sweden. And um, one of the things that happened was that it sort of coincided this inventory with the Nordiska Museum in Stockholm deciding to revamp its previous permanent exhibit, uh, which Ernst Manker had created, I think, in I think it opened in 1947, right after the war, and it was called The Lapse. And um, they went ahead in the in in 1980, revamping, and they they for some bizarre reason, um, in retrospect, they didn't involve any Sami input, whereas Ernst Munker had worked closely with the Sami people from Yokomok and elsewhere to design a number of exhibits. Uh, this time they didn't ask any Sami. So this caused a huge uproar. Um, and the museum was um, kind of surprised strangely enough that the Sami people and all the different Sami organizations were making such a big deal of this, but they exhibited, uh, they exhibit was postponed for a year. And it was a great example of how the Sami were really no longer willing to have outsiders make the final decisions about how they were portrayed. It was a long battle. However, it didn't happen overnight and things didn't really begin to change until around the last 20 
five years, I suppose. In 2008, the Sami uh, exhibit changed again at the Nordiska, and a lot of people were involved in that, a lot of Sami organizations, and it was a very, very different kind of exhibit. So by this time, there were many more Sami museums with Sami staff and directors. That's been especially true in the last 30 years. So one element that is very much part of the conversation for a lot of cultures um, around the world is, of course, um, repatriation of objects uh, when it comes to museums. And that's very relevant in this case, right? We've been talking about museums all over the place that have been taking Sami objects for centuries. Um, And with this idea of Sami being much more involved in museums and how their culture and material objects are portrayed, what is sort of the conversation around not just having Sami staff and Sami museums, but of repatriating um, material culture that is held in places that were not created by Sami? Right. Um, well, issues of repatriation have been discussed really since the 70s. Um, and initially, there was kind of limited repatriation in the form of long-term loans for which the museums had to pay. Um, the National Museum of Denmark, for instance, had a very significant drum, which had been uh, taken in, I think, 1691 at a trial of a, a, a man who was later killed, a Sami man. And so they brought it down to Copenhagen. It was in the Royal art collection of the king, and uh, then it became part of the National Museum of Denmark. So they loaned it to the Sami Museum in Karashok when it opened in 1979. And for the last years, the Sami Museum has been trying to get it completely um, given back to them, no strings attached. And so there has been a lot of pressure in Copenhagen and uh, so, head of the Sami parliament, Ailo uh, Aili uh, Keskitalo, wrote to the Queen of Denmark, for instance, and um, they kept this up until last year in 2022. Um, the uh, National Museum of Denmark did give them back the drum, finally. And this has been treated as a sort of great precedent, gotten a lot of attention. There's a big exhibit going on now in Karashok. Um, Cambridge also loaned a, a drum, their their single drum, that was taken in or that was given to them in the, in the 1700s um, to Aitya uh, in Yokmok, and it was there for maybe 10 years. They renewed it a couple of times during that period, I think, um, but they ultimately wanted their drum back. So it's now back in Cambridge, and for quite a while, Aitya just sort of left a little card in the vitrine saying, you know, we miss this drum. It's now back in Cambridge. Um, they're hoping to get it back. And um, there have also been a lot of discussions of repatriating crania and human remains that are held in Stockholm and Oslo to be reburied in cemeteries. And a number of those have, have come back. There's not much discussion about that. Um, but there are several main reasons for repatriation from the larger national museums to the specifically Sami museums located in the Sami homeland. And one reason, of course, is to recognize the Sami people's right to manage their own cultural heritage 
for example, it's likely that one of the Sami museums will display the objects in a different context and that visitors will be able to talk to staff who are Sami and know the history of the object. Another reason to repatriate is just practical. Sami artisans, students, scholars, visitors want to have more access to the physical objects to study them up close and to feel reconnected to the ancestors. Very often, Sami objects are not on site at the museum. They're housed in warehouses uh, distant from the museum. So it's not easy for visitors to see very many of them in a setting where they can study them. And this is true at the Nordisk in Stockholm. You have to get on the subway, then you have to get on the train, and you have to go out about a half an hour to this climate-controlled building that has everything, tons of stuff there. And you can spend, you know, an hour or two looking at things and then you have to go back. So, um, you know, that's not useful for people who really want to look at these um, and learn from these objects. And so a third reason to consider repatriation is a kind of atonement, really, for the many centuries of colonization and racism against the Sami by the dominant culture. And you're right, repatriation was only really discussed within Scandinavia, but more recently it's come to include museums in Europe. Most Sami objects in European museums are barely displayed. For instance, in Berlin, the uh, Museum of European Culture has about a thousand objects from Sápmi. Many of them are quite old and unique, and none are even displayed, and the staff doesn't really feel like they have the competence. So that that's there's a working group now that's, that's trying to see what can be done in terms of um, some form of repatriation anyway. Um, gosh, do you want me to go on? Because this is a very exciting and fast-moving time for re- repatriation, um, and I could up, sort of do a little updating, too, of some recent things. Um, Sure, go for it. Sure, (laughs) okay. So um, a couple of years ago, the National Museum of Finland in Helsinki uh, repatriated almost their entire collection of Sami material culture. And this amounted to uh, 2,200 objects. And they sent them up to Sida, the Sami Museum in Inari in the north. And um, the same thing was happening in Norway in a slightly different way, a process called Bostede, which means the return in the South Sami language. It's been ongoing for a number of years to repatriate around half the collection of Sami material culture at the Norwegian Folk Museum in Oslo. And one of the ways that this transfer is different than the one undertaken by the National Museum of Finland and SIDA is that Norway has many more Sami museums. There are 12 physical museums, most of them in northern Norway. And most of these museums are also community centers with libraries and kindergartens and and classes. And the Norwegian Folk Museum had a collection of around 4,300 objects. Some were collected by the missionaries and merchants, others from the ethnographers. Um, in In 2012, there was a formal agreement signed between the Norwegian Folk Museum, the History Museum, and the Sami Parliament in Norway to return half the collection to different Sami museums under the Sami Parliament's management. And the process has been very lengthy. And this is kind of instructive when you're talking about repatriation. Um, It's 
it's not always so easy to know where the objects come from. You know, sometimes the entry just said Finnmark or Lapland. So there was a lot of research required to figure out what museum and what part of Sopmi would receive the objects. And there was also the problem that um, many objects had been treated with pesticides in the old days, and they had to be removed in a very time-consuming way. And another factor was that many of the Sami museums, especially the smaller ones, did not have the staff or the facilities, including the climate-controlled storage, to receive and house the objects. So several of the larger museums, this was not a problem. They either had climate-controlled storerooms or they got funding. Um, But some of the smaller museums, it just hasn't happened yet. So even though formally the objects now belong to the museums, there's a lot of them are still in storage in Oslo. Um, Yes. And at the same time, as the discussions of repatriation are going on, the three Nordic countries have all set up truth and reconciliation commissions to gather and document stories of past and present discrimination. And while these commissions aren't perfect, they're a step in the right direction. Um, And I think that just goes together with this whole idea of repatriation. It's not just about, you know, putting a, a bowl or a spoon or something on a plane and sending it up north. It's about actually saying, we took this from you, even though we might have bought it, um, even though we might have been given it, it still is something to do with you um, and you need to have it back. And I find that actually quite inspiring, a little bit optimistic. Well, on that wonderfully optimistic note, um, and thank you for all of the kind of updates of what's happening uh, right now and what's, you know, what we can look forward to in the future. Um, My last question is essentially along the same lines, but perhaps uh, more micro level than what multiple governments are doing at the same time. What are you working on now or next, Uh, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about this that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Um, Well, uh, the University of Minnesota Press, which published um, From Lapland to Sopmi, is reissuing an earlier travel book of mine called The Palace of the Snow Queen, Travels in Lapland and Sopmi, it was originally published in 2007, and I've written a new afterword. Um, It's originally the story of three winters that I spent in the north of Scandinavia, about 20 years ago, and my growing understanding of Sami culture and politics. But in the afterward, I particularly focus on the threat of resource extraction to the environment up in the Arctic. Um, Because I had in the first book, I had written quite a lot about landscape and the fact that it uh, Lapland was always described as untouched. And um, of course, that's not true. The Sami have been living there for millennia. And um, the the race for green energy and rare earth minerals um, and wind farms is really impacting the Sami at this point. And there's a lot of uh, pushback against that. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit and, and acknowledge that. Um, and so then the other thing I'm working on is another translation project of Sami folktales that were first published in the 1920s from northern Norway. And that's been interesting because they were collected, you know, by another lapologist, um, Kvigstad was his name, in a time when um, there was a strong um, 
press to assimilate the Sami. Again, it was sort of a salvage ethnography project um, to collect 600 folk tales and publish them in, in four volumes. But um, it's, it's really interesting to me. This is a big part of Sami culture, the folk tales, and it is really considering that it's, it was an oral culture, uh, a big part of their, a big part of their culture. Very cool. Thank you for telling us about those two projects um, and best of luck working on them while you are off doing that. Of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing from Lapland to Sami, published by the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, It's just come out, actually, which is obviously very exciting. So, Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Miranda. 